welcome to the Coot Street Podcast from the World Fantasy Convention in, where are we, Los Angeles, California. Uh, Jonathan is not here, but I'm Gary Wolf, and I have with me today um, our guest of honor, Margot Lanigan, uh, old friend of the podcast and multiple award winner this past year alone for non-fantasy books, but that's okay, uh, <laughs> Ellen Clages, and another old friend of the podcast, Eileen Gunn, who just gave such a provocative talk about alien fantasy, animal fantasy lives, that we want to continue with that, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> but one of the reasons I asked all three of you here today was um, that well, I wanted to have a conversation, but all of you have taught uh, writing. You've taught writing workshops, you've taught at Clarion, you've been to Clarion, some of you, I know, had legendary teachers at Clarion. Margo, who are your teachers at Clarion? Uh, my teachers at Clarion were Nancy Chris, Octavia Butler, Howard Waldrop, Gordon Ben Gelder, and Gwyneth Jones. Have I missed one there? That's, that's impressive enough. <laughs> and one of your, Ellen Clegis, one of your... Margo Lanning. <laughs> <Margo Lanning. laughs> and, and Ellen Datlow and Michael Swanwick oh. and... Scott Westerfeld and the lovely man who taught the first week whose name I'm blanking on. Paul Parr? No. Um, the lovely Aussie man uh, who writes with her. Sean Williams. Yes, Sean Williams. Oh, okay. And Ian Irvine. And my clarion teachers were Tom Dish, Joanna Ross, Kate Wilhelm, Damon Knight, uh, Joe Haldeman, and Robin Scott Wilson. So you go back to the founder of the Clarion, Earth. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it was still had been going for a good eight or nine years when I started. Wow. So, so be, between the three of us, we have the entire history of 20th century <laughs> science fiction and fantasy. But you've also been taught by... This is my thing. I don't know anything about teaching or writing. I've never done it. Um, and it seems to me that there are things that are common sense, short fiction kinds of rules of thumb... And yet, all three of you and many of your teachers have consistently violated any rule of common sense storytelling that seems to me to be taught. So how does... We have no thumbs. Well, maybe that's it. I mean, take your teacher, for example, who is, again, one of our heroes, I think, Howard Waldrop. His stories aren't like anybody else's stories. How, what, what did he say to people who wanted to write a Howard Waldrop story? You can't do that unless you're Howard. No, he was basically saying, don't write Howard Waldrop okay. stories. He was, he was swearing us off some of the material he was planning to use mm -hmm. right from the beginning. <laughs> um, but he was, he was just basically looking at, looking at our stories and, uh -huh. and, and giving us advice on how to. Well, do you tell people them. to not try to write Margot Lanigan stories? Well, sort of, yeah, in a, in an indirect way. I'm not. Really, it's not quite the same. I mean, he was doing it in a joking sort of a way. The well, yeah. topics he reserved for himself he didn't want us anywhere near. But um, basically, that's what you're saying. You're not. You don't want. I mean, and there are there, up to a point. It's useful to be imitative, uh -huh. um, and, and you can learn a lot from trying to see from the inside how the mechanics of scenes can be put together. And sentences, and yeah. um, but beyond, beyond that, there has to be something that's essentially you yourself writing. Otherwise, um, otherwise, it's not an authentic. For story a long time, really in, in first drafts, when I would get stuck, I would read a Kelly Link story and then try to write a pastiche of Kelly Link. I didn't think of it as a pastiche at the first time, mm -hmm. but you you cannot imitate Ke Kelly Link. But I would actually write out 
Kelly Link paragraphs until I found some nugget of my own voice, and then I would go on from there. Uh-huh. Um, oh, and it's not, I mean, mm-hmm. nobody can write like Kelly Link. Nobody can write like Margot. Nobody can write like Howard. I think the thing is that you, you have to find some entry into finding your own voice. It I'm, never, it never occurred to me to try to imitate any of my teachers. Really? Never. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at Clarion, uh, one of my fellow students, who was a very, very good writer, but didn't continue in the field, uh, for Tom Dish's week, wrote what was obviously the world's best Tom Dish pastiche story. <laughs> it was brilliant, and it wasn't meant—it wasn't meant to be humorously mocking him. It was simply a funny story in the tradition of Tom Dish. And the rest of us were all kind of outraged, like it was cheating. How do you do this? Yeah, my how do, well, if you if you're already a good oh, right. writer, you can do it. But it, it was a mostly a bunch of students. How did Tom Dish react? He loved it. <laughs> <laughs> he lapped it up. <laughs> and you would think that Tom was not a particularly flatterable human being, but no. Was, but one of the things I you're talking about copying out uh, uh, Kelly Link stories. I've I've talked to somebody. I can't remember who it was who said one way to learn how to write is to choose your favorite writer and just write in longhand, just copy out one mm. of your favorite stories. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, because uh, you're, you you find the rhythm of, of the sentences. and you find. I mean, I write longhand anyway, uh-huh. but, but I think when I'm copying out something that I really, really admire, I find the rhythm of the sentence and, and the, the rhythm of the punctuation, which you don't notice mm-hmm. if you're just reading. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing it out... You suddenly see where the pauses are and, mm-hmm. and where, where the line breaks are and where these long sentences go and then short sentences and you get the, the feel of the symphony. Hmm. Yeah, you see a whole lot more. It's, it's slowing it right down so that you can see all the details. I think that nuances. probably makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah. The only thing I've done that's like that, I mean, I can't imagine writing out somebody's story in longhand, but I did take a, an Isaac Dennison story that I felt some sympathy with what was being done. And I typed in the first page or two of the story and on a computer and then went through the story and interpolated my own sentences into the story hmm. with my own story, with a different story based hmm. on a house that I grew up in. And then I went back and took out Isaac Newton's <laughs> and then added what needed to be added to make it still make sense. And I, I, I still haven't developed it into a longer story because it didn't really begin with an idea. It tapped into a lot of things that you use when you're writing that kind of a story. But it didn't start in my head as a story. So I think I had trouble making it longer. You know, I got mm-hmm. to the end of, of, Erasing Isaac Dennison from my life and, <laughs> <laughs> and didn't, just didn't move on from that. Isaac, you are dead to me. <laughs> yes. Oh, I like that idea. It's a fascinating idea. I, I wonder if part of that is getting into the rhythm of it because there are stories, um, I can think of where the content has nothing to do with the original story. The story I'm thinking of, there's a very famous story by Ted Chang called Exhalation. And the opening sentence is, Something along the lines of air, which some called argon, is, and the rhythm is exactly the opening of Borges' The Garden of Forking Paths, I believe. The the, the commas, the pauses, and that sort of thing. And I talked to Ted about this, and yes, he clearly had Borges in mind, but there's no content 
similar at all. It's mm-hmm. simply the rhythm of the prose that he was picking up on. And your that. immediate reaction is, wait a minute, argon is not air. Well, <laughs> all of a sudden you're in some very different place. Well, that's 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 a reaction of a science fiction reader rather than a poet, I guess. The poet was looking at the sejuus in the sentence. Uh, but, but, but the other thing, which I, I convinced all these people to come up here and record this podcast, because of writing what I called unclassifiable stories, and you've all done that, uh, some of it's related to a lot of the themes of this convention. You've all done things that are based on folklore or fairy tales that reinvent them in a way that um, I don't know how to exactly describe. I'm, I'm actually thinking, Eileen, not necessarily fairy tales, but you've got Bigfoot stories where you just reinvented Bigfoot from the ground up. Um, and is that something you look to for story ideas, or did you simply thought, I'm going to write a Bigfoot story? No, I always thought Bigfoot was kind of a dumb concept, <laughs> and and but it's local to you know the North Pacific Northwest. Yeah. It's actually local all over the world, but different names like Yeti and so forth. But they, it, I actually it actually didn't start out to be a Bigfoot story. It started out to be a um, a comic story about hippies cross country skiing. And okay. it was based on a real event where we didn't actually meet a, a Bigfoot or anything, or an alien or mm-hmm. whatever, but we did almost get stranded in the woods as the characters in the story did. And it was kind of that setup where I was I was uh, cross country skiing on Mount Baker, which is where uh-huh. the Bigfoots live, um, anyway. And in big feet, big feet, big feet. the big feet live. Um, it 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 didn't I. The Bigfoot was kind of an afterthought when the, my characters are sitting in the in the hot spring and something is watching them, and that's when it kind of occurred to me. It, well, I thought it was a bear, and mm-hmm. the the, uh, the the guy says it's a bear. The woman says, "No, no, no, that's a guy." And then the creature moves forward and says, "Well, you know, how are you folks to see that?" <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? Talking bear. Well, I mean, the, the, the Bigfoot, I guess there's not really a folk tale about Bigfoot. It's just a kind of general legend. But I know that some of the um, uh, stories that both you, Margot, and, and, and you, Ellen, have done are clearly alluding to earlier traditions. And, for example, well, I'm thinking about something like even the education of a witch, uh, where you're, in, in effect, I think criticizing, satirizing, commenting upon the received ideas that uh, underlie that folklore. You know what I'm saying here? Um, uh, Maleficent well, okay, it's, ba- it's, it's based on, on Maleficent, which is Disney. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm wearing Maleficent today. Um, but it's also based on Shirley Jackson's memoirs of her children growing up, which is what I read to get the, the tone of it. Uh-huh. Um, and and I read a 1961 copy of Doctor Spock, so I I tend to come from non-traditional traditions, um, and then merge three completely separate things because really Shirley Jackson, Maleficent, and Doctor Spock don't usually come up in the same conversation. Probably not. No. Um, um, but yeah, those those were the three things that I remember drawing on, and the the Shirley Jackson memoirs of her kids are not the Shirley Jackson that most people think of. Um, right, but they were the right the right era, um, and the right sort of tone of talking about childhood without being really, really you know um, 
sympathetic is the right word. You know, to, yes, thank you. Um, just it's like oh, you cute little childhood, and it's like no. The the whole point is that childhood is is both innocent and really dangerous. Um, well, Mario, the, 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 this comes up more often with your fiction because of actually looking at uh, Cinderella or, or Snow White and Rose Red, and um, it's they're reimagining these things in a radical way. But but there's not a sense in which you're saying that the Grimm brothers got it wrong. You're oh, you don't think? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think that they got it wrong? This is um, well, Snow White. And Rose Red is, is it, yeah, it's the Grimm's, and um, I, I really objected to what they had done to an earlier uh-huh. tale, where they had, they had, rendered the heroine so insipid, and and they had broken the plot that was there, mm-hmm. and it no longer functioned, and uh, so in, in, I mean, that's, but that's just kind of setting myself an interesting technical problem to go and fix that plot mm. again not by undoing it to what it was before but by making something new of it um, uh, but also just to most mostly from a feminist point of view wanting to revise those mm. those fairy tales that are generally about warning girls and women about doing anything active, I, yeah, interesting or intelligent is, and this is one of the things that one of our other guests who I hope we'll talk to later Jack Sipes has done a lot of the revisions of uh, the, the tales that the Grimm's collected, I gather, were rather considerably reimagined by them for mm. what amounted to social and political agendas that they yeah. were following. Mm. Um, and, I, I, and, and I wonder if that's true with other folk tales as well, because there's a, Calvino has a wonderful book called Italian Folk Tales that are misreadings of folk tales, probably in an Italian way, different from the way the Grimm's misread them in a, mm-hmm. in a German way, but you still wonder what the core story was there. Mm. And I wonder when you're doing these kinds of things, are you trying to find what the real story was? I don't think there's a real story. There's there's real stories. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, from the research that I've been doing, I have, have more opinions on this than mm. I did, like, six months ago. Um, everybody tells stories and people flavor them differently, and the same stories are found all over the world. Mm. But they're very different stories in individual places. And that actually is in the chapter, the second chapter of that essay, uh, about uh, a particular Haida myth and how it was retold and how it was translated and what it meant culturally to the Haida, what it meant culturally to mm-hmm. the Germans. It's, it's a swan maiden's myth, but retold in, in a very specific uh, northwest coast context. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robert Brinkhurst, who is a, a poet and folklorist and who speaks Haida, reimagined re- from the original Haida text the cultural, he, he clarified, I guess, this word, mm-hmm. the cultural references and what they meant symbolically, like the choice of berries that are discussed or the, the food that the geese eat in the story. What what that means in the cultural context of those people, Mm -hmm. which might not be what the same thing would mean in Germany or India or anywhere else that the same story might be told. I think you can take it down to even a more macro level and you have, you know, family stories. And if you have siblings, you're not telling the same story. 
Right. Um, you're, you've got you've got this family legend, and everybody is going to tell it differently. And after a while, it sort of bifurcates so that you know if you if your sister is married and has kids, her kids are going to have this family legend that is completely different from the family legend that you have, even though it's based on something that at some point happened, but it happened when you were three, and you you've heard it as as really an oral tradition. And then it, it bifurcates in the same way that folktales do, but it's it's much more a, a smaller scale. Hmm. Uh, I, actually, it happened to me and my brother, but I don't want yeah, to get into that right now. It happens to me you, and my sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. It, because yeah. When, when, once you're separated, the family stories separate as well, mm-hmm. and they sort of get created around your, your own current lives. That's that can be a depressing thought. If you follow it too too far. But you but, you start creating your own, your own folktales. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's um, what I mean. Mm-hmm. And if your family is important enough, or mm-hmm. or or has enough descendants or stuff, you end up with folktales that that probably have that same kind of origin. Um, but it's generation mm-hmm. and generation and generation. It's just in in mm-hmm. my case, I'm in the second generation of of the story, and there could be a third and a fourth and a fifth generation. So 200 years from now, it could be a folktale. I mean, the scary ham could end up end up end up being being somebody's somebody's idea of of you know mm. uh, fifty years from now somebody's going to be rewriting the scary ham in their own tradition because I got it wrong. And right mm. now, there's nobody but you and your sister who can correct that. So and and we disagree. So, and you disagree yeah, about it. So, so okay. yeah, I've been doing some diploma of family history, and uh-huh. one of the interesting things is that at some level they're very interested in family legends and and hearsay stories mm. that come down the ages and, and things, you know, oral history and, and first-hand retellings of things from people's childhood. And at the other end, there's there's not, not wanting to distort the family story, wanting to stick as close to the facts as yeah. you possibly can and that terrible feeling that you, you, really, you almost don't want to embroider any of your primary sources because you don't want to actually bend them out of shape any further than that teller has right, already exactly. bent them out of shape. So. It's like and the concept a... of facts mm. in a family situation is is a weird I know, thing because, because you don't actually know, mm. and especially once your parents are dead, you can't go and ask and say, okay, so this thing that happened the year before I was born, mm. what actually happened? Mm. And mm. my mother and father would tell two different stories. Mm versions yeah. of the same event that they were both at. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, well, my mother at the moment would tell you two different versions of the same story from, yeah. from month to month, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that. yeah and Google. both of them would be true in a sort of a way. Yeah, but yeah, fact, but it's fact is the wrong, I think, word. Yeah. Maybe fact is just the wrong yeah. concept to be dealing with here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah kind of itching mm. for things to hold still, but of course... Mm. Just yeah, because you're going back to subjective primary sources. Mm. Which is, to some extent, all we have, going back to Eileen's talk just before we recorded this, where she was looking at uh, stories before there were writing stories, but, and, and the fact that narratives seem to exist among all levels of the animal world, so that the, the idea of trying to na- nail down a particular narrative, you were talking about Gilgamesh, for example, which are fragments, uh, I gather they've discovered some recently discovered more fragments of Gilgamesh. <laughs> but again, There's many different versions of Gilgamesh. And there are lots of different versions. There, and and uh, no one has any idea really where that came from. There are still, I guess, somewhere in the world, oral traditions. I remember uh, in Eastern Europe, I think in Romania, there were still 
essentially storytellers who would pass on epic family histories, memorized word for Mm -hmm. word. But that may not exist anymore. That was Mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years ago. So I don't know if that tradition That's been going on for tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of years. People have been passing on the stories word for word, except one idea, one person's idea of word for word is not necessarily exactly. another yeah. person's mm. idea of word for word. And, and you know, in some sense, you, researching folklore makes you wonder if there are any new stories. Can anybody tell any new stories? Because the stories we create are based on the stories that we've heard. And if some of what I was talking about earlier today is true, based on some innate processes in the human brain. Uh-huh. So... Is there something in your brain that makes you tell stories a certain way? Is there, you know? Go ahead. Actually, this is Jack Sykes. So I'm not going to be. I'm going to be shutting up. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think also then you get into translations or transcriptions where somebody actually tries to write down this oral history and they get. They make typos, or they get words wrong, and then that gets passed down as word for word. And well, it, it's already it's already left the oral tradition if people are writing it down. Yeah, but but it, it there there are mistakes every time there's an iteration, um, and so the iterations are never never going to be identical. That's a kind of folkloristic version of Harold Bloom's map of misreading, I guess, where the, your misinterpretation of earlier literature is what enables you to have a voice. To some extent. But I think that's what's really interesting about about fantasy as as a field is that every once in a while somebody does come up with a story you've never heard before, mm-hmm. and it's not based on on anything that you can trace back. I mean, it might be in their head, but it's something that mm-hmm. feels like it's completely original, um, and it's a lovely thing when that happens. Well, one of the things that has come up more than once at, at this conference is. Margot, your story is singing my sister down. I think everybody I talked to who read that had, there were the echoes which people thought were there of, of, uh, of Shirley Jackson, but the general reaction was mine, which is I'd never read a story like this. Nothing sounds like it. The voice isn't like anything else. And so the obvious question, which you probably have gotten once or twice in your career, is where did that come from? Well, it just came from seeing that documentary about the tarpit. So that's sort of the physical world and Uh and just the thought that, um, well, humans are never going to use this in a completely blameless way. They're going to use this to get rid of things we don't want in our society. So we'll either use it as a rubbish tip or we'll use it as a place where we put the people that we're not interested in keeping in our society any longer. So it was just a matter of, of creating a crime that was... So worthy of that of that punishment and um, see and putting a, a, a sort of an innocent protagonist. Mm-hmm. The yeah. point of view. And when I read it, I thought it was set in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Right. Really? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, somewhere deep south Louisiana, Mississippi. It it right. it work. I mean, because it's not set in any actual where. Yeah. It works really well as a deep south Southern Gothic story. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Also, because it's, I mean, a lot of what makes it unlike any other story that that people have read is the style and the, the careful control of what the reader knows. So the story of the family's, you know, 
hanging around an execution in itself is not that's that might be if you if you were a folklorist writing it down one of the elements would be family you mm-hmm. know seeing a, an executed a convict die mm-hmm. but that would just be one of the many things that you're doing and so is that a story is that 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 um mm-hmm. motive is not a whole story and the other motives that are in there plus the style which is your own style and not other people's it's not mm-hmm. Shirley Jackson's style all of these come together to make it something that everyone's like wow i have never read anything quite like that and yet every behavior in the story is is very realistic on a on a, on a kind of human interaction level your people do attend executions people do worry about their sisters and they um so so nothing that anybody in the story does is fantastic everybody in the story is a real and this strikes me in case of all three of you since we're about to wrap up um we could go on for hours but but all three of there you you write real characters it's I, it's the old cliche of Marianne Moore's imaginary gardens with real toads in them um that see, it seems to me that makes a certain kind of fantasy work is that the character interactions have to be utterly credible as if this were happening in the real world this is what people would do and the dialogue uh, i think supports that uh, as well i mean ellen you have this very strange story about uh, a kind of five year old dystopia which i think was based on a an ancient disney cartoon and it's it's, it's a what's the title of the story uh, it's uh, singing on a star singing on a star very disturbing story except every 5 year old in the story acts exactly like a 5 year old when fantastic things are happening to these 5 year olds they don't react the way a 7 year old would react even they react no because they don't know how the world works they, they so the fact that there's this fantastic thing is like oh well, i've never seen that before but mm-hmm. you know i don't i don't know much um cuz i'm 5 so mm-hmm. apparently my friend's house has an elevator in the closet even though it's a one story house my house yeah. doesn't but I've only, okay, I've yeah. never been in her house before. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is possibly, I think it's the creepiest story I've ever written. Um, and it's creepy because it's a five year old and it's yeah. nothing, nothing actually overtly happens in the story and everybody that is reading it is going, no, don't go down those stairs. Um, but yeah, it's, it's completely realistic except that it isn't. Exactly. Um, so, okay, as long as we're finishing up with one story each. What is your famous? Is your most famous story still stable strategies? Do you think? Oh Lord knows. I I mean I don't monitor. <laughs> I don't <laughs> monitor that. <laughs> well, since you used it as a title anyway. Here um, we can pull up the gunometer and see yes. where where you are ranking <laughs> today. But just to finish up, stable strategies again is a really disturbing dark story uh, in which. Everything is fantastic, and everything is completely in keeping with the way corporate life is. Uh, so it's completely original, completely realistic, completely credible, and completely off the wall all at the same time. My little Valentine to Microsoft. <laughs> to Microsoft, yeah. <laughs> um, stable strategies for middle management is one that uh, actually becomes more and more relevant the more we watch what goes on with Google and Microsoft and YouTube and these people. So. Well, I want to thank all three of you for joining us. This has been a wonderful little conversation, and uh, uh, we'll—I'll I'll send this into Jonathan. He will try to patch this into some kind of a podcast, and 
Uh, I don't know when it'll be on, but thanks again. It's been a pleasure. Thank okay, you. Great. And 